The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 13. Uh, We're going to continue today in our series working chapter by chapter through the book of Genesis. Uh, This series is called Our Story Begins. One of the kind of underlying premises that I'm going to keep putting in front of you is the idea that because uh, we have been made the family of God through the blood of Christ and faith in his finished work, uh, that this Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and on through the history, the the grand redemptive narrative we see in scripture. This is not a story about someone else. This is a story, this is our lineage. This is our heritage. This is, these are our people because we're people of faith. And we're going to keep talking about that because it changes the way, when you think about it that way, that you read these stories. When you understand how connected you are, and if if God was going to continue writing scripture about what's going on in his redemptive plans today, we would be in there somewhere way down the line, right? And so we're connected to this in a very real way. And I would say in the realest way possible that you can be connected to something through these eternal bonds that Christ himself has created in drawing us together through his gospel. So last week we looked at Genesis 12. We saw what is commonly referred to as the blessing of Abraham. God comes to him and says, I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. And through you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. We see Abram Abram build altars. Things are going pretty good. But then there's, there's a famine in the land that God called Abram to go to. And we don't see any instruction from the Lord about this. But what Abram decides to do is go to Egypt goes to Egypt, tells his wife Sarah, hey, they're going to kill me if they know you're my wife because you're really fine. And so uh, we're going to tell them you're my sister, which we also talked about was a half-truth. You know, he was, she was the daughter of his father, but not his mother, so she was his half-sister. But the whole point is he was taking things into his hands. He was going to Egypt. We don't see God's telling Abram, go to Egypt to survive this famine. That's, he does that. So he's already taken things into his own hands, and then when he gets there, he's got to use what he thinks is kind of some cunning and maybe selective truth-telling to make sure everything's going to be okay. And uh, chapter 13, we're going to see what, what seems to be, what I would submit to you, is a further development of Abram, the man of faith. We see a pivot, almost a juxtaposition between what he does in chapter 12 and then how he conducts himself in chapter 13. So we're going to look at that uh, together today. So uh, I hope you found Genesis 13. We're going to read uh, the whole chapter. It's, it's only 18 verses, so don't sweat it. Uh, whatever rad thing you're doing after this, you'll make it. All right? Genesis 13, starting in verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt to Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him and Lot with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. He went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been in the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. 
And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. If to the right, then I will go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zor. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. I just want to point out how cool Bible names for places are. Did you catch that? Zor. Like Natalie and I were driving the other day, and we were looking at the names of subdivisions. It's like Whispering Pines and like, you know, Tumbling Waterfall. Like nobody names anything Zor anymore. You know what I mean? Like if I ever develop a subdivision, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be something rad like that. Okay. I'm just telling you right now. All right. They were way cooler back then. So, okay. So Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. And then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Praise God for his word. All right, let's work through this chapter together. Uh, <clears throat> let's look at, take verses one and two together. So, so Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him and Lot with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Because of how <clears throat> divisive people's thoughts around wealth, even people having wealth or not having wealth, if, if you've been around here any amount of time, this is not going to be an idea that you haven't heard before, but I just want to show you a concrete example. What, we're, what we see here is a man that was tasked by God with stewarding great wealth, who also was righteous before the Lord and humble. And we see that even in the way he dealt with Lot, right? Abram, as the older and kind of the leader, it really seems to me that some of why Lot is doing so good is because Abram's doing so good. And so Abram really would have had the right to say, I'm going to go left, you go right. And Abram should have said, or Lot should have said, Yes, sir, right? But that's not the way Abram conducted himself. And so I just want to point out to you, there's, there's a common misconception, and Satan sows the seeds of this all the time, that uh, socioeconomic status determines your standing before God, right? And people tend to, when they buy into these lies, they tend to demonize people that are of a different socioeconomic status than them, right? So what do I mean by that? I mean, if you're somebody that has less wealth if you buy into these kind of lies, you tend to think people that have more wealth had to have done something wrong to get it, okay? Or if you have more wealth, 
and you buy into these kind of lies, you tend to think people that have less wealth don't have it because they've made poor choices or they're lazy or some other character flaw. And the reality is, the Bible is far wiser than we tend to be when we get kind of pigeonholed into these false categories. The Bible shows us examples of righteous rich people like Abram and unrighteous rich people. Righteous poor people and unrighteous poor people, okay? Socioeconomic status does not determine righteousness. Abram is a really good example of that, all right? He had, he was very rich. He's like, well, are you sure? Guys, he was very rich in livestock. Like, well, okay, well, he's just got a bunch of animals. And in silver and gold. This guy, this guy, God had entrusted him to hold on to some bank, okay? And, and I think some of you might be tempted to think that's never the case. That if somebody's wealthy, they have to be doing something wrong. Sometimes God knows I can trust that person to hold this because he or she will do with it what I tell them to do with it. Amen. And that's a good thing. <clears throat> Probably rare, <laughs> er than it should be. But okay, let's look at verses three and four. Uh, he went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been in the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Here's something real interesting. Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes sure to tell us in no uncertain terms. It's not just that he went back generally to the place where he was when he left Egypt, which I'm proposing to you, and many would say the same thing. The whole Egypt thing looks like a detour. Because God said, go here. And then there's mention of a famine, but no mention of the direction of the Lord for Abram to go there, right? So, and things went sideways in Egypt, right? So, but the point is, <clears throat> now we see Abram coming right back to the exact spot where he started. The very altar he built the time before, okay? And so what is, is there anything in that for us? I think there is. Because Oftentimes, when we, in our own lives, and I'll just say this for me, because maybe you guys have never experienced this. When I've made missteps in my life, when I've taken little detours in my life, some of you probably have a perfect record, so you can't even relate to this, but I'm just going to talk out of my own experience. When I've taken little detours or, or uh, took things into my own hands, there, there's a temptation once you realize that that's what's happened to panic. And there's a temptation to, like, like, well, what do I do now? Have I screwed everything up? And, and I just want you, you know, we could talk about just about every part of the grand redemption narrative from Genesis to Revelation to, to draw this principle, but the principle is this. You messing up is not going to stop God's will from happening. You can't. You don't have that much power, man. Okay? Did, did Abram misstep? Even if you don't think going to Egypt was a misstep, he, he got there and for sure started fibbing and stretching the truth and doing this and that to, to finesse the situation so it, it would come to an outcome that he thought was good, right? For sure, he at least misstepped in that way. He for sure was not trusting the promise God had just given him, this incredible blessing God had just spoken over him. He was trusting in himself at that point, okay? But my, what, what I'm submitting to you is, Instead of panicking, instead of worrying that, oh, now I've derailed my entire life, and now, now what's going to happen? Sometimes the very best thing to do 
when you realize, oh man, I've messed up, is don't walk, run back to the last spot you knew you were in obedience. And start back from there. And, and submit yourself to the reality that that might feel like I'm losing ground or I'm going backwards. Look, sometimes if, if you went, you know, if you're out hiking somewhere in the wilderness and you take a wrong trail, you know, you can, you can be salty about it. You can feel however you want to feel about it. But if we're going to get back to the right trail and get to where we were trying to go, you may have to walk backwards some. Okay. That's okay. That's much wiser than going, well, I already went this way. I might as well keep going. Not that any of you would do that, of course. I'm just saying hypothetically, right? No, that's, that's really foolish to just kind of double down on the, the, the stupidity or the error, right? So Abram goes right back to that spot where he built that altar in commemoration of God's blessing and promise to him. And so that, <clears throat> we're starting, that's, what I'm, that's why I'm saying chapter 12 and 13, there's a, there's a comparison and contrasting happening here that I think we're supposed to notice. It seems like Abram learned something from the Egypt detour. Praise God, right? It sounds like Abram's a quick learner. Sometimes it takes me more than one time, you know, of thumping into something because I'm trying to do my own thing. All right, so praise God. And that's, I think, helpful for us. You're, you're, never, you're never stuck you're never without hope. You've never done something uh, so monumentally foolish that, that the Lord's going to have to rework his will <laughs> around your mess up. God is sovereign and mighty and powerful. That's all great news. And he's good. And his intentions towards you are good. And so what's amazing is that because God exists outside of time, let's say you do take a misstep. Let's say you do make unwise choices for some period of time. Guys, you got, you got to remember this. God's, God's not sitting on his throne going, oh, I didn't see that coming. Now what are we going to do? You know, calling a council of the angels like, guys, we got to figure, okay, we got to pivot now. Call an audible here. No, no, no. God exists outside of time. He knows about all your mess ups before they happen. And his promises are still true for you. Does that, does that mean I should care less about obeying God's will? Does that mean I should be less careful about seeking his guidance as I navigate through this life? No, if, to me, uh, that makes me trust him even more and want to know his will even more. <laughs> the fact that he's that mighty and powerful and not restrained by time like I am, okay? Hopefully that makes you want to worship him more. If it doesn't, then you're probably just not grabbing the idea yet. Think about it more, and you should want to lift your hands in worship to a God like that. Do you understand? We could have had a lesser God than this. Do you understand? There could have been a being that could create all this, but not be so perfectly good and mighty as our God. You realize that, right? But, but that's not what we have. We have an infinitely perfect, loving, good, mighty God, and he set his affection upon us. That's super, super good news. You won't hear anything better this week, I'm telling you. All right? So that's verses 3 and 4. Let's, let's look at verses 5 and 7. <clears throat> 5 through 7, sorry. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great they were not able to remain together. There was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. Okay? Uh, for those of you who are tempted to believe that more material wealth will solve all your problems, 
Uh, here's an example of why that's not true. And it, it's, it's, a common, it's a common mistake that people make. The Proverbs talk about uh, the mistake of a wealthy man imagining his wealth as an unscalable wall, right? The idea being that because I, any problem that I can imagine, if I have enough currency, I can throw currency at the problem and solve the problem, all right? Uh, I would just, not to disparage him in any way, but just, I would just call this example to your remembrance. Uh, Steve Jobs had money, is that right? Everyone understands Steve Jobs had some coin? Steve Jobs died of cancer, okay? So the wall's not unscalable. The wealthy man imagines his wealth an unscalable wall. That's part of what it looks like to worship money instead of God. God has no problem with faithful stewards having currency in their hands to do kingdom work. God's about that. God will do that. What God doesn't want is for that currency to replace him. As far as who you're trusting in, where your hope lies. What, what does your heart, when a problem pops up in your life, what is the first thought that crosses your mind? Is it, ah, I, can, I can handle this. Or is it? God help me. I don't want to just handle it my way. I want to handle it your way. Lord, I need you. Do you believe you need him? We should. <clears throat> and, you know, if maybe you're here, I don't know who else here. Maybe you're here and you're still trying to decide whether or not you trust the truth and the wisdom of the scriptures. So maybe this example doesn't ring a bell for you or stand out as something that you, you can really relate to. If that's you, then I would say, you know, in the late 90s, uh, a cultural prophet named Notorious B.I.G. <laughs> also echoed this idea with a song called Mo Money, Mo Problems. Okay, so it's, it's not just the Bible that recognizes this. There are many people, you know, that's, I, wish, I wish there was a way to connect people for conversations that believe money would solve their problems with people that have a lot of money. Because I know a lot of people that have a lot of money and I do have heart level conversations with them. And I'll tell you what many of them have told me. On, the, the imagination people have of how much easier things will be or how much better it'll be if they had more money, it's really, it comes down to this. When, when, when you're believing that, you're, you're exerting all of your energy to try to get and acquire that currency. And then there's a pivot point where all of that energy just tends to end up getting focused on now trying to preserve it, trying to, trying to keep it now from somebody taking it from you for various reasons, right? And so it, it doesn't, <clears throat> money's a terrible God. It, it's, a, it's a great pretend God, but if we're trying to really get down to what we're looking for from a true God like our God, money can't do it. It can't give you real peace. It can't give you real security. It can't give you what God has promised to give you. Peace that transcends understanding. Okay? It, it can't do that. It's not, it's not powerful enough. It was never meant to. All right? So even if you don't believe the Bible, uh, <clears throat> talk, talk to Notorious B.I.G. He can get you straight. All right? Uh, <clears throat> you probably shouldn't go look that song up. I actually don't know anything about the lyrics specifically, so it's probably not... That is not an endorsement. I'm just throwing an idea to you that other people have noticed this principle and, and not from a biblical perspective. I don't think Notorious was like, oh man, you know that story about Abram and Lot? I'm going to write a song about that. I don't think that's what happened. 
I think the man just acquired a bunch of wealth and realized this didn't solve all my problems like I thought it would. Actually, now I have more different problems. I'm still in need of something. I hope he figured out where he could have that need met because it's in Christ alone. Amen. Uh, So the fact that Abram and Lot are both so wealthy that they can't inhabit the same space and the way that this chapter ends up playing out, it's really a great lesson to help us have a balanced view around all of these things, okay? Um, And and we're going to talk more about that in a second. I'm going to just rabbit trail, and it won't be long, but I just want to mention because it's here. It's not totally clear why this mention in verse 7 of the Canaanite and the Perizzite being in the land is included. It, It seems like a detail that was there on purpose, but it's not totally clear what the detail is there to convey. There's a couple options and it might be both, all right? It could just be that what we're learning by that is that the Canaanite and the Perizzite being in the land was, was adding to the space constraints, right? So Lot and Abram have these big herds, but now there's these other people in the land and that's why it's mentioned, it's just to let you know that's why things were tight, okay? It could be just that, or it could be that it's mentioned that the Canaanite and the Perizzite were in the land when this strife is happening between these herdsmen because there's a potential that the strife between these two groups was a detraction from their witness of the goodness and the glory of the God that they claimed to worship. It could be that Moses is pointing out, you know, that God is calling this people to be a light to all nations. God is establishing this tribe to, for eventually for Messiah to come from. And, and eventually, you know, he's, he's going to bring Moses in and there's going to be this, this law that gives these people parameters in which they can, if they obey, <laughs> stand as a light to all of these other nations that exist in darkness. And, and so the thought is that potentially the fact that you've got these two guys that are supposedly worshiping this God, you know, the Canaanites and the Perizzites probably never heard of this God of Abram. And, 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 you know, they're talking like, <clears throat> this is the one God, this is the one you should worship. And then, but for them to then see them squabbling over land and herds and all of that, the idea could be that that could be pulling away from the, the glory of God. And you might say, well, I don't know, that seems like kind of a stretch. Yeah, unless you know the New Testament, which clearly tells us in multiple places that the primary way God's people are meant to be identified in the world is our love one for another. That our unity, according to Jesus, is going to be a major apologetic, a major point of of convincing the world that God has done something radical in the hearts and minds of the people that belong to him. Because they will dwell together in such unity and such love for one another that it it will actually be a contrast. It'll catch the attention of a world that doesn't live that way. Okay, so that might be in there, and I think probably is especially with then how we see Abram respond. I think we're learning about part of what it looks like to be a peacemaker, to be somebody that consciously thinks about the unity of the body of Christ in the way they conduct themselves. Uh, Abram's example here is solid as far as that's concerned. Okay, so let's look at verses 8 through 13. It's kind of the the real bulk of what we're here to see today. So Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me. Okay, That's part of what leads me to say what I said before. Abram is conscious of this strife and the problems that it brings, okay? Nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. 
And I'm just going to be honest. I'm, if I'm Abram in this position, I definitely, at bare minimum, am going to have an initial reaction of, I'm the uncle, you little putz. You only have what you have because you're tagging along with me. So tell your herdsmen to shut up. That's the answer to this problem, right? That, I'm just telling you what my initial... Don't get so... You guys are staring me down like if you had lasers in your eyes, I'd be dead right now. I'm just saying that might be my initial, probably would be my initial reaction. Hopefully, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I would get closer to what Abram came up with, right? But I'm just telling you that those thoughts would probably cross my mind. Like, hold on, why is this even a problem? This seems very simple. You know... (laughs) Okay, so... Is not the whole land before you? Abram's still talking. Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. If to the right, then I will go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes, saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go to Zor. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley, and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. So, we see something of a clue of what Lot is focused on in that description. We'll get to that in just a second, all right? So, we're going to contrast now what Abram seems to be focused on and how that affects his conduct in this situation. And then what it appears that Lot is focused on and how that affects his conduct, all right? So we see both men are wealthy, so that's the same. But then things start to diverge from there. Abram seems very much to be others-focused, right? He takes the position of, if you go left, I'll go right. If, If you go right, I'll go left. He takes the low position. And, and in so doing, I'm going to use this term, he, he's giving up his rights. Because I'm saying, and I think everyone should understand this to be true, Abram had the right to dictate the situation. As the older, as the uncle, as the one that kind of got this whole thing kicked off, Abram had the right to just say, you go over there. But he gave up that right to answer this way. You pick. Whichever way you go, I'll go the other way. All right? And I think that tells us something about what he was focused on and what his trust was in. Lot, on the other hand, was wealthy, but it seems very much that Lot was self-focused because Lot not only, you know, if, <clears throat> I, if, if Lot could have done the best thing possible here, I would submit to you Lot should have said, Uncle, thank you for, for saying that. That means a lot to me. But you pick. But he didn't. Lot lifted up his eyes, looked around, looked for the best land that was going to help him perpetuate and grow his wealth and went for that and didn't really consider the fact, apparently, that heading over that way, there was a bunch of people that were pretty committed to doing the exact opposite of what the Lord God would want them to do. Okay, so it seems like he's self-focused. He trusted in his wealth and his ability to grow and preserve it, not in the Lord. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build a case for Abram conducting himself in this way translates to me directly 
that his trust was in God. And I'm not sure those dots connect easily, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trace the line for you. But I want to camp for a second on this idea, because I know it can be hard to digest, of giving up the rightness of Abram giving up his rights in this situation. He had a right to do this different. He didn't do it. He took this low, humble road instead. I'm going to, I want to point out some other examples. I'm going to read some other scripture to you that, <clears throat> that holds this idea up. And I'm going to talk about some of the reasons why I think it might be hard for you to, to accept this idea. Uh, because there's... <clears throat> This is right. This is biblical. This is godly. But there's a whole lot of voices out there that would tell you it's not. So we'll unpack that. The first example I want to give, in addition to what Abram did here in giving up his rights and humility and in having an other's focus, I want to call your attention to Paul. I'm going to read a section of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul talking about the fact that he did not take anything from the Corinthians when he came there preaching the gospel to them and planting the church in Corinth, okay? So that's what he's talking about. Here's what he says, starting in 1 Corinthians 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as most of the apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I have no right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its fruit? Or who tends a flock and does not consume some of the milk of the flock? I'm not just asserting these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does the law not say these things as well? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking entirely for our sake? Yes, it was written for our sake, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing in the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we do not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ." Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But I have used none of these things. And I have not written these things so that it will be done so in my case. That's important. Because somebody could be reading this and thinking, well, Paul, it just seems like Paul's twisting arms here for an offering. Didn't that kind of what it sounded like? Don't we have a right to this? Don't... We've, we've done all this spiritual work and, and, and he's laying out these principles from the scriptures of why it would not be wrong then for him to receive the things that he needs to live out of that spiritual work. But he's saying, I'm not, I'm not writing this so it'll be done for in my case, for it would be better for me to die than that. So, so he's not taking an offering at the end of this. He's just trying to teach him a principle to think right about how they deal with people that have sown into them spiritually and are caring for their souls, Right? So that's, I'm, I'm so glad he said that. No one shall make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast about. For I am under compulsion. For woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I've been entrusted with a commission nonetheless. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge. 
so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Okay, I know that was long, but I wanted you to hear the whole argument. And I wanted you to hear the use of of Paul's language. What he's talking about is, I had a right when I came and preached the gospel to you. When I came and planted this church in Corinth and and I, I raised you guys up in the gospel, I had a right for you guys to take care of me physically when I was doing that. But I forewent that right, and he said specifically why. <clears throat> we endure all things, verse 12, so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. There was other places, other cities where Paul planted churches, and he was supported by the people there. But in Ephesus and in Corinth, Paul had enough sensitivity to the leading of the Holy Spirit to know that in that cultural context, if he, if he lived from the gospel that he was preaching, if he lived by the, the, the generosity and the obedience of the people that he was raising up in this church, it would, have, it would have in that context been a hindrance to the gospel, so he gave up that right. He had a right to it, that's what I'm saying. And most of us, you know, specifically where we live, when we live, <clears throat> we're very aware of our rights, uh, we're very aware of what we feel entitled to. And there's almost never the thought that I would willingly relinquish something that I'm entitled to or that I would consider a right. I'm just submitting to you, there are situations where it is right to relinquish your rights out of humility and out of care for others. Paul had a harder time planting the church in Corinth and in Ephesus, had to work with his hands and, and do all this additional stuff in a, in a, in a, alongside all the incredible labor of trying to plant a church, but he did it. Why? So that they wouldn't be a hindrance to the gospel. So that it wouldn't, so the people there wouldn't be harmed. Obviously, they were, they were too immature when he got there to understand it was not wrong for him to be supported by that. Okay? And instead of him chastising them over that, The Spirit led him to give up his right. And really all he was doing was reflecting the greatest example of this, which we find in Philippians 2, when the Bible tells us that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant. Okay? Here's a question for you. You guys didn't, you know, the, the Paul example in Corinth seemed like it was talking about offering, and you guys were waiting for me to hit you about offerings, which never happened, but, you know, that, you were all real quiet about that, okay? So, all right, let's forget about that for a second. Did Jesus have a right to stay on his throne? Did Jesus have a right to stay in the unapproachable glory of the Trinity forever and not come down here in the dirt and mess with us? Did he have a right to do that? He, he, had, he, he had every right to do that. But every single one of us, Abram didn't have the example yet, so he gets even more credit, but Paul and, and anybody else that ever gives up a right for the sake of somebody else, for the sake of the betterment of somebody else, out of love and out of a sacrificial spirit, you are reflecting the greatest example of that, which is Christ. Because he gave up every right he had to allow himself to be born of a virgin and to come down here and live in the dirt with us and to suffer and to die in our place. Jesus gave up. He was, 
He, was, he had the, the, the least amount of, of, of real reason to do it other than his love for us, right? It's, it, there's, no, there's no other motive. <laughs> Nothing else would be pushing him other than a, than a care for us to do it. You know, you could try to make the argument that, well, maybe, maybe Paul wasn't really following Jesus and he just wanted to be famous or whatever, which would be an idiotic thing to say because the guy just got pummeled, I mean, literally to death the whole time. You know, it's like if, if, if his plan was, I'm going to get rich and famous and, and live an awesome life by planting these churches and stuff, he was real dumb if that's what he was trying to do because it did not go that way, all right? So, nor did it for any of the rest of the apostles that ended up giving their life to preach the gospel. But in any case, this idea of, of giving up rights for, and being others-focused for the sake of another, uh, I realize we live in a country that is, we are, we are very aware of rights. And, and, we, and I'm not saying uh, what God's calling you to do is give up all your rights all the time or never have any boundaries with anybody or any institution or organization. That's not what I'm saying, but I'm just, I'm just trying to lob you the idea that there will be times and situations that if you are willing to obey the spirit, it will, it will require of you to relinquish your rights for the sake of another in humility and out of love. Okay. So we have, we have Abram who was, he was wealthy, but he was others focused and he gave up his rights. His trust was in the Lord. We have Lot who was wealthy, but self-focused, trusted in his wealth and his ability to grow and preserve it. And so here we see the issue with these guys was not the wealth. They both had wealth. The issue was who or what they trusted in. That was the real issue. And I think it should lead us to the question, how, I don't know if, I don't know if we quite get the reality of this, right? Because we, we live in a fairly sanitized time frame, at least in this context. There are people in other places in the world that they would get what I'm about to say much easier because their life reflects this much more. But we're talking about an agricultural situation here, right? Like, if things don't go well with the flocks and stuff, we all die. Okay? Everything's hanging in the balance here. How is Abram able to say, you know what? With all that hanging in the it's not like this is a no big deal thing. That's what I'm trying to say to you. If you take your flocks and you go left and and that land can't support your flocks, and, and they start to die off, now we don't have food to eat, we don't have animals to sell, our whole livelihood, and there is no, you know, Abram wasn't going to be able to call up and get an EBT card if things got hard, you understand? That's, that wasn't around yet. I hope we all get that. So there isn't really a safety net. How can he respond like this? How, what would he, where would he have to be standing in order to say, you know what, I'm not going to, I'm not going to fight with you about this. We're, this strife is for sure not worth it. Whichever way you go, I'll go the other way, and I'm not going to be worried. How, what, what does that mean? Well, I, I think that points to an incredible trust in God. Lot looked for the best land because Lot was going to try to keep multiplying his wealth so that he could count on that to not end up in a bad spot. Abram's like, I'll go anywhere. If God's with me, we're going to be all right. That's a real helpful attitude to have. You ought to, you ought to press yourself on whether you think that way or not. Because to the degree you can, you'll experience more freedom than you ever have in your life. 
If you can get to the point where you don't feel like you always have to scheme and finesse and, and do this and that and control stuff in order for t- just to be okay, like if you could really buy into this idea that God's got you, I'm trying to tell you something. When, when the Bible talks about freedom and liberty in Christ, man, that's part of what it means. Not doing all the hand-wringing all the time. Because what if this doesn't work? Well, okay, a lot of stuff won't work, okay? A lot of stuff you try is going to blow up. And the world's jacked. It's going to be hard things, man. But does God have you? Well, the answer to that is yes. Also, I think Abram was not worried. We, we can, how do we get into the mind of Abram in this time frame to dictate why he reacted this way? Well, I think Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, gives us a window into the mind of Abram. Uh, Hebrews 11, commonly called the Hall of Faith. Okay, so many of you be familiar with that. Uh, eight, you know, Abraham features prominently in Hebrews 11. So let's just see what, by the inspiration of the Spirit, the author of the book of Hebrews had to say about Abraham's thoughts and motivations, okay? By faith, Abraham, I'm starting in verse 8 of Hebrews 11, if you're a note taker. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he left not knowing where he was going, which is so awesome. Verse 9, by faith, he lived as a stranger in the land of promise, in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was, verse 10, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. That's what he was looking for. So right off the bat, we're starting to understand, Abram was not super focused only on the temporal situation in front of him. His hope was not ultimately placed in everything goes well with these herds. His place, what he was really looking for, what he, what he had a consciousness of, according to the writer of Hebrews, is that there, there is a final city I'm going to whose builder and architect is God. Right? You might say, well, I'm not sure that means that. Well, I'll keep reading. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, even from one man and one who was good as dead at that, there were born descendants who were just as the stars of the heaven in number and as innumerable as grains of sand along the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen and welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Listen. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country which they left, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. What's my point? Part of why Abram was able to not freak out when it came down to, we got to split these herds. And, and so, and we know Abram didn't take this approach because he's just a simpleton and he doesn't know how to finesse stuff, right? Because we just read in chapter 12, Abram knows how to scheme if that's what we're going to do. Abram knows how to tell a little bit of the truth, just enough. What He could have came and he probably could have had Lot all spun up, you know, used some reverse psychology, this and that, and ended up getting Lot to pick the, the side that he didn't want. And make it look like he was doing the right thing. You know, Abram's not a dumb guy. So why didn't he do all that? Why didn't he get in here in this situation and try to control it like he did in Egypt? What changed? What, what, what was he focusing on? 
Well, here we see in, in Hebrews, by the inspiration of the Spirit, a, a window into the mind of the man. A lot of what motivated him was that he was looking for a city whose architect and builder is God, that he had desire for a better country, a heavenly one. All his eggs were not in the basket of what's just going on here and now. And that, when, when you can live like that, when you can start to have an eternal perspective, fear and anxiety about what's going on right here in, in the right now loses a lot of power. Abram had an eternal perspective. I did an experiment this morning to, to try to <clears throat> analogize this idea in case it's not landing. And I don't know if this will help as much as I think it will, but I'm hopeful. Uh, my kids are both now at the age and weight that we have a perpetual kind of standing heated discussion slash argument every time we go to get in the vehicle. Parents, what are we going to argue about when we're going to get in the vehicle? Anybody know? Who gets the front seat? Because, uh, you know, the Shekinah glory of God rests upon the front seat. Obviously, everybody knows that. It's the only suitable place anyone would want to sit in a vehicle for the Lord's good sake, okay? So, that's a thing, and it's, it's basically every time. Um, it, it normally, you know, we try to put systems in place to avoid bickering. So, most of you have heard of the, uh, I called it system. You know, so whoever thinks about the front seat first and blurts it out vocally, they can lay claim to the front seat. That's one system. But even that isn't perfect, because if somebody is quicker a few times, the other person starts to feel slighted. Well, you got it the last three times. Well, I called it, but you got it the last three times. But I called it. Right? So I did an experiment this morning. I grabbed the kids. I said, I need you guys to do something for me, and I'm not going to explain what I'm doing. I just need, you, I need your help. So just do what I'm asking you to do. Okay, can you do that? Yes, all right. So I told him, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go out and get in my car, parked in front of the house. We're going to get in. I'm going to start it. We're going to back up two feet, and I'm going to pull back into the spot. That's all I want. So I just want you to come do that with me. Can you do that? Yes, and don't ask me why. Okay, so we do it. We go out to the car, get in the car. I back it up two feet, put it back in the parking spot. You know what I didn't hear anything about? I didn't hear anything about the front seat at all. Why do you think maybe that was? Because they knew it was a very short trip. I didn't hear a word about the front seat. They literally just got into seats and there was no argument. They knew it was a short trip. So there was no need to bicker about something trivial like the front seat when we're just going to back up two feet and then pull two feet forward, right? Is anybody connecting the dots yet or do I need to spell it out? This life compared to eternity is a two-foot trip in the car. To the degree you can get your head there, it's going to help you not bicker so much about foolish stuff. Also, be nice to my kids because can you imagine... Can you imagine having to be the subject of the object lessons because you're the preaching pastor's kid? Yeah. I love you, man. Thanks for helping me preach. And you get back up don't, stage. Don't, don't, don't leave me hanging. There you go. 
You know you argue about the front seat. Um, <clears throat> now, I half expected, you know, I, I thought that's how that experiment would go, and I would have just had to abandon it if they still argued about the front seat, but they didn't. It, it, it worked. And I think, I think that is a helpful analogy to what Hebrews is saying is the way Abram thought. Part of why Abram wasn't freaked out about which way he was going to go is he had a heavenly country in mind. This is not the big show, man. This matters. This 70, 80, 90 years, whatever the Lord grants you, it matters. It matters. But it's not the whole thing. It's not even the greatest representation of reality for you as an eternal being. You're not home. That's why it uses language of, in Hebrews, you know, they, they operated like exiles. They operated like they were just passing through. That's a really helpful mindset for somebody that is, is going to seek to live by the principles that God is calling us to in the gospel. Okay? Amen. All right. <clears throat> Verses 14 through 18. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you, to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Memre, which are in Hebron. There he built an altar to the Lord. Abram's back to building altars to the Lord. It's a good sign. He didn't build any altars in Egypt. Go back and read Genesis 12. There was no altar building in Egypt. Um, there was, I'm going to try to do this my way. So we're back to building altars. We're back to our trust being in God's faithfulness and promises. Uh, that's where we want to be. Verses 14 through 18, particularly, <clears throat> where it says, uh, for the lambs you see, I will give to you into your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. So that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. This is, this is really good news. And uh, you may, again, part of why this series is called Our Story Begins, part of what I'm trying to make sure there's a ton of connective tissue for you between these ideas and these promises and and the reality of God's overall plan of redemption and how we play into that. I really I want you to see how that connects. This promise about descendants, a Abram, the childless guy who's too old to be having kids, having descendants so numerous it's like the dust of the earth. The Apostle John got a glimpse of the future fulfillment of this promise. Let me read that to you in Revelation chapter 7. Starting in verse 9, after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count. What did God say to Abram? I'm going to give you descendants so numerous, what? Basically, it's going to be like the dust of the earth. So if someone could count the dust of the earth, then they'll be able to count your descendants. What's God really saying? It's going to be so many, no one would want to try to count. That's really good news, and it tells you a lot about the character and nature of our God, and what he's focused on, and what his desires are. Okay, this, it, it reminds me of one of my favorite verses. You hear me say it all the time. When Peter told us that God is not slow as some count slowness. He's patient, willing that none should perish. 
The promise of God to Abram was, I'm going to give you so many descendants, it's like the dust of the earth. And then he gives the apostle John a glimpse of the future fulfillment of that. Because now we're in the throne room of God with a great multitude which no one could count. Same language. From Genesis to Revelation. From every nation and all the tribes, peoples, and languages standing before the throne. That's also good news. This wasn't just for the genetic descendants of Abram. You understand? People from all the tribes, peoples, languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands, and they cried out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. (laughs) Friends, This promise to Abraham about descendants, man, this is not some disconnected story of ancient things that happened that don't matter to you. If you are a follower of Christ, man, this is your story, and you're one of those descendants. And we will be standing in the throne room of God one day, declaring the glory of Christ with many, many other of these dust particles. Amen. That's good news, man. I know, looking around today, it is very easy to get drawn into the temporal trappings of, of everything that's wrong and to get discouraged and to feel like, man, it's, what, what are we even trying to push against here? There's so much darkness. And, and I don't disagree with you. The days can look dark. The days can be discouraging. But friends, the promise was made in Genesis, and we've already seen the glimpse of the fulfillment of the promise in Revelation. We're just in the middle part. We just need to be faithful and stay in that pocket of where we're trusting God more than we're trusting ourselves. We're trusting God more than we trust our own ability to to try to secure something for ourselves and, and to follow the example of Christ. If we can stay in that pocket, man, the, the end is guaranteed. The promise is fulfilled. And you sit today, if you belong to Jesus, as a part of the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Do you understand that? You're one of the dust particles if you belong to Jesus. This is our story. This is your story. This is, this is even more meaningful than those of you that have a family tree or a 23andMe or whatever the heck you got that you can maybe trace back your uh, biological lineage to the 1500s, maybe the 1200s. I don't know. People get real into that. And that's great. I don't have a problem with that. Hallelujah. You know, you want to know your ancestry from that perspective. But what I'm trying to tell you is the ancestry that's going to matter forever is this ancestry. The ancestry that binds us together by the eternal blood of Christ, not just biological and, and DNA connections. Because that's, that is not eternal. But those that have come into the family of God by faith, that have been called righteous before God by faith, we will all stand in one throne room one day, and no one will be able to count us. And I don't think anybody will be thinking about counting when we stand in the full, unveiled glory of God. It's going to be amazing. The promise to Abraham is being fulfilled, and it will be fulfilled. And in case you're like, man, I don't know, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure. This, this will be, not be the last time you hear these verses in this series. I'm going to bang this drum until it's broken. Galatians 3, starting in verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Friends, relationship with God has always been based on faith. It always has. You go back to the garden, what really happened? What really happened 
was that Adam and Eve put their faith in the deception of the enemy instead of in what God had said. That's really what it came down to. They believed something other than what God said was true. They placed their faith in the idea that that fruit was not going to lead to death. It was going to make them like God. They bought that lie. They put their faith, they placed their faith in the lies of the enemy instead of in the truth of God. And so it makes a ton of sense that if a misplacement of faith is what got us into this problem, that placing faith again in the right object of faith is how the problem is solved. Grace is wild. It does, the Bible says that the gospel is foolishness to the unbelieving. The fact that this whole thing is not based upon our performance, the fact that this whole thing is not based upon whether we can do enough good things or avoid enough bad things, that, that doesn't compute to the natural mind. That's why the Bible tells us this sounds like foolishness to those that have not yet believed. Because it, it, it's so antithetical to the way the rest of the world works. But this, this is the bottom line. You are in the family of God if your faith and trust is in Christ. Not if you can do good. Not if you can avoid bad. Not if some cosmic scale in the end weighs out and, and you did more good than bad. None of, none of that's in play. What does it come down to? Can I believe what God has said about me that I'm a sinner and that I need a savior? And can I believe that he is that savior? That's the gospel. That Jesus died in our place. He took the punishment we deserved and that he rose from the grave three days later. This is what our hope is found. This is what makes us into the family of God. This is what makes us into that, <clears throat> that remnant of, of, of so many people that it's like the dust of the earth. I'm going to read this one more time, then I'm done. Just as Abraham believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness. Therefore, recognize that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. That's why we're going through the book of Genesis and we're calling it our story. Because it's those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Are you of faith today? I am. I'm a son of Abraham. And I'm real glad about it. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Praise God. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you for this contrast as we see this arc of growth in the life of Abram. In chapter 12, he's, he's scheming and he's, he's finessing. He's doing whatever he thinks he has to do to, to get the situation to land how he wants it to. But he comes back to where he started, and he comes back to that altar, and he communes with you. And then the next opportunity where he could have applied that same kind of logic, where he could have worked the situation, tried to get it to bend to his preferences, uh, we see a complete abandonment of all of that and putting himself and his future into your hands. He says to his nephew, whichever way you go, I'll go the other way. We see, we see him not <clears throat> acting as if he has to control the situation to know that he's going to be okay, but there's a confidence and a trust growing that, 
the promises you make, Lord, you will, you will always stick to. You don't make a promise and not keep it. And I ask, Lord, that you would help us not just observe our history, not just observe the walk of faith of, of the father uh, of our faith, Abraham, Lord, that you don't, please help us not to just observe this, but help us to take this and apply it to the grid of our own life. Let this, let this arc of change we see in the life of Abram and how he relates to you and how his faith is growing, Lord, let it, let it speak to us. Let it instruct us as we're moving into the next situation where we're tempted to either trust you or to start trying to control everything ourselves or try to figure out every possible thing that could happen and in so doing drive ourselves into a place of anxiety. God, help us have an eternal perspective. Help us be willing out of humility for the sake of others and for your glory and for the furthering of your gospel. Help us when it's right to relinquish our rights. We, to have something we absolutely could say, I, I'm entitled to that and we wouldn't even be wrong about it, but even, even to give that up in preference and out of love for you and for others. Lord, please give us the discernment to know when it's right to do that. Help us, Lord, not to, <clears throat> not to be a people that insist constantly on, on getting what we feel we deserve. Thank you that you haven't just called us to this, Lord Jesus, but you gave us the most incredible example of it. You gave up every right you had as the God of the universe to come, to live among us, and to teach us and to heal the sick and to be abused by the leaders and everything that happened to die in our place and to rise again, Lord. If, if you, the one who, if, no, if someone was ever going to hold on to their rights, you had the right to. If you're going to do that, how can I say I'm not willing? Please help me in this, God. May it be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.